pick a market, find where you fit in because you can't do everything and, you know, work with mentors. Welcome to the Wealth Matters podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I have with me Rob Beardsley. Hey, Rob, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course, man. So Rob is a multifamily investor and syndicator. Uh, he oversees acquisition of and capital markets for Lonstar Capital and has acquired over $100 million of multifamily real estate. And the reason I, uh, or, or the way I found Rob was through his book. Uh, he, he has written a great book. Actually, I went through it as well. Uh, the Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily. And I thought, why shouldn't we have Rob on the uh, you know, podcast? So Rob, uh, feel free to add if I forgot anything. <laughs> oh, that was great. So let's get started then. Tell my uh, listeners something interesting about yourself. Something interesting about myself myself and it's something that I uh, sometimes I'm shy about but then other times feel more comfortable about is the fact that I actually went to school for to study computer science and you know to get into technology and consulting and then I actually ended up starting Lone Star and dropping out of school to, wow. to start my business and have never looked back so that is something that is interesting and unique about me. Oh, and actually, uh, you, you shouldn't be shy. I, I'm a computer science major, right? I did my master's in computer science uh, from New Jersey. <laughs> so, you know, I don't feel shy. That had paid my bills <laughs> and, and that got me started. So, and of course, you, even, um, even though you dropped out, right, you can apply the technology knowledge to the underwriting as well. You, can, you sh should be able to automate and, and a lot of other, you know, um, exciting stuff using technology, right? <laughs> yeah, it is fun to apply those principles and thought processes to problem solving, you know, whether it's in underwriting or other parts of exactly. business. So when and how did you start investing in real estate? So I actually grew up in a real estate family. I, I grew up in Silicon Valley, California. And oh, okay. my, my parents uh, used to run a real estate residential brokerage firm uh, from home in uh in atherton california and so i grew up with them being on the phone all the time talking about deals talking about real estate and and seeing their projects as well in terms of uh um, developments single family flips and, and obviously the sales side as well so i was immersed in real estate from a young age uh, but you know was just absorbing it and not really taking action at the time but then when it finally became older and became very curious about investing and looking at different options of investment, I, uh, I quickly saw that real estate, specifically commercial real estate with the scale and the ability to grow with a team was the best option for me to pursue for both a career and for my personal investing. That's great, man. So yeah, you know, I wish I would have known about real estate when growing up, <laughs> but no, that, that's, and so 
you were in computer science uh, and why did you choose real estate then of course i understand you had a family uh, it means your family was in real estate but you know you chose technology and then how and why did you decide to get into real estate yeah and so kind of goes back to what i previously said when i when i was looking i, I was very i was always very curious and very passionate about investing i felt strongly about the idea of delayed gratification. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I was always familiar with the marshmallow test that they did at Stanford. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that where they, uh, and, and sometimes it's with a cookie or a marshmallow where they put a child in a room and they tell them, okay, you know, here's the marshmallow, you can eat it now, or right. I'll walk out for 10 minutes and if I come back and it's still there, I'll give you another one, you can have two. Yeah. And so that's kind of the basic delayed gratification principle delayed, which yep. they found has a higher correlation to success for these, you know, five-year-olds or 10-year-olds or whatever, how old they were, uh, than their SAT score, their GPA. So it's very fascinating. So anyway, so investing, later gratification, I always liked those principles. And so, like I said, even though, even I was, even though I was pursuing um, computer science, uh, it, it was kind of more of a product of, of my environment growing up in Silicon Valley, seeing all the tech startups and, wanting to be a part of that. But really, truly, when I looked at what pragmatically fit my personality, I like the, the get rich slow approach yes. rather than the, the get rich quick. The, the boring, boring works, man. Boring. <laughs> right. So uh, interesting story. What was the reason you decided to write the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions? Yeah, this, I, I love this question because I wrote the book for my previous self, for my past self, when I first got involved in multifamily uh, investing. Because when I, when I first got started, I, f I assumed that a book like this would exist, right? A straightforward, really a hands-on manual that would teach you step-by-step -step what you need to do to underwrite. Because obviously when I got started, I, I quickly realized that underwriting was, you know, one of the most important aspects of the business. You have to know what you're buying yes. and you have to know what you're, what you're getting. That's what it's all about. And so the, when I looked around that, that book didn't exist. And so, you know, I, I certainly didn't learn all on my own when I did, you know, lean on a lot of mentors and there was a lot of great teaching moments where I was able to uh, learn from people with far more experience. Um, but I knew as I learned, I, I would go on to give back and, and write this book, which would be that gap that didn't previously exist where people you know, both looking to become active multifamily investors as well as simply passive investors who want to get smarter about what they're investing in by the numbers would be able to actually get an accessible, quick book um, to learn this stuff and to not view it as something that you need to, you know, be a, a, a master at real estate modeling and, and, you know, Excel and things like that, because that's not what it takes. It really, as I tell people, it only takes about six months of really hard dedication and you'll be a master at it. So it's not this, you know, difficult thing to achieve. It should be accessible to, to everyone, past investors and active investors. That's great. So uh, how long did it take you to write the book and how many deals did you underwrite or just, you know, um, to get, uh, to prepare your underwriting model? Yeah, that's great. So, as you alluded to, I, I've actually uh, built my own underwriting model from right. scratch. And it's available for a free download on my website really quick.
like robbeardsley.me. But the point is, is that model, I built it. And as I learned more, I rebuilt it, threw it away, improved it, rebuilt it. And that's allowed me to incorporate all the learnings that I've had underwriting over a thousand deals um, into that model, right? To make, make it the best and to make it work for, for me most importantly, but it's worked for a lot of others as well. So the, you know, the, the, the short answer is that I wrote the book in only about two months, oh, but, wow. you know, the knowledge to, to write it took, you know, three years to, took three years to accumulate. And, uh, the way I wrote the book is I just pulled out my model and I looked at all the inputs and I used the inputs as basically almost like a table of contents or a, you know, a guide for, for, you know, what I would write in the book. So it was a very straightforward way for me to write it because it's, you know, the whole table of contents was right in front of me. Yeah. You, you had the model, right? No, that, that's awesome. And, um, let's talk about underwriting itself. Why is underwriting important? Yeah. So as we talked about before, right, underwriting, what it is, is it's really breaking down a deal by the numbers. So it's, it's analyzing the cash flows, the, the, the purchase price, the financing, the capital expenditures budget, and incorporating that all into, you know, one model that can provide outputs that'll let you know about the return potential of the project. And the reason why this is so important is because, like I said before, you need to know what you're buying. And you need to know if what you're paying is the right price. Uh, you know, without it, you're really driving blind and you have, you have no idea. You know, you can't just look at sales comps to say, well, this is a good, it's a good deal. This is a good price because every deal is so unique and you have to actually underwrite the cash flows and understand the property's potential for future growth um, to really accurately price the asset. So, so that's underwriting in a nutshell. Oh, that's great. Thank you. So uh, what are some of the underwriting matrices you focus on? So we look at uh, IRR, which is internal rate of return, which is basically, it's a universal return metric used by all alternative investments that have uneven cash flows. And it helps to analyze those cash flows and, and smooth them out via compounding formula. So that's IRR. We also look at cash on cash because we want to be able to see what sort of cash flow potential the property has. And we also use that as a gauge of risk because if a property has very low cash flow and a high IRR, what that tells us is that we're relying on the sale, you know, in three, five years or more to earn our return. And in the meantime, we're not really getting the best cash on cash that we're looking for. So, and then inversely, if we're getting a great cash on cash, but the overall return is not as exciting, you know, we might be able to live with that because we are reducing our risk because so much of our return is coming from cash flow, which is less risk than relying upon a sale. So, so those are some of the metrics we look at. Um, obviously, for different stress metrics, we look at debt service coverage ratio, which mm-hmm. is a DSCR. Yeah, DSCR, and that's something, you know, that's kind of one of the most simple risk metrics in terms of just seeing how much income do you have coming in versus how much debt service do you have going out? And you want to have a good balance there. The, and then another one that's similar to that would be your break-even occupancy, which gives you an understanding of. 
Yeah, sorry to interrupt the DSCR, even the, if you are getting the landing, you know, Fanny and Freddie requires it to be 1.25 or even over, uh, you know, um, right now because of COVID, even they want up to like close to 1.4 or so, right? Yeah, that's right. So, it, you know, lenders care about DSCR, investors should care about DSCR as well. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So sorry to interrupt. You, you can continue on the next one. <laughs> No, that's fine. I was just uh, talking about break-even occupancy, which is okay. similar to DSCR because it relates to how much occupancy you need in order to service your debt at essentially a 1.0 DSCR, which would be your uh, cash flow available for debt service is equal to your debt service requirement, right? A 1.0 DSCR and uh, break-even occupancy would tell you what that is. So, you know, if, you're, if your break-even occupancy is somewhere down around, you know, 75%, but the property has held steady at in the, in, in the low 90% occupancy range for the last three years, you know, that can provide a lot of comfort. Got it. So uh, do you uh, focus on break, break even occupancy um, uh, all the time? Like it has to have certain 50% or 60% break even occupancy before even you take a look at the deal or uh, how, how do you, um, how do you decipher that particular metrics? Yeah, we don't, it depends on the deal. We don't spend a ton of time focusing on it necessarily. We, uh, we just look to check on it sometimes and make sure that it, that it fits the return that we're getting. And so we don't want to look at deals in a binary way and say, well, yes or no. We want to understand that, deals are on a spectrum. And so, you know, we, we feel that it is appropriate to take more or less risk depending on the return potential, right? So if the, if the break-even occupancy isn't as great, but the, but the returns that we're projecting are, you know, higher than normal, we might be willing to take that, that risk. Got it. So what other metrics you look at? We spoke about IRR, DSCR, and break-even occupancy. Well, another thing that's really interesting that I actually is my, is my favorite stress test is the exit test. And this is a, a refi test that we look at on bridge deals where we're buying a property that's unstabilized and we need, actually need to renovate it and raise income to support a refi or a sale uh, at, at a new higher valuation. And so the exit test is a great way to really see if you're going in with a high leverage bridge, bridge loan of let's say 80% of your purchase price plus your CapEx, are you creating enough value to then be able to refi that same property with a lower leverage loan due to the increase in value? And so the, the exit test is exactly that. And it looks to see, you know, in your base case scenario, have you created enough value to pay off your existing loan and then you could stress that as well. You could say, well, what if you miss your, your revenue projections or what if cap rates are higher when you look to refi? Um, so, so that's a great, I love that because it's a great indication of your maturity risk as your shorter term bridge loan matures. It does, and like I said, it really only applies for the most part to shorter term loans because if you're looking at a 10 year loan going in, right. you're not dealing with maturity risk for 10 years and you know, in 10 years time, you're likely going to be in fine shape in terms of principal pay down on your debt, rent growth and, and property performance. 
in t- 10 years, you know, our uh, real estate stock, everything is cyclical, right? So 10 years is a good time frame when you will have, even if you get, hit a bump, you are going to get, you know, out of it at some point, right? So, uh, no, that's a great point. So let's say you have a bridge loan or, sh- or short-term lending uh, and you are looking at the exit test. What variables do you use to figure out, you know, uh, let's say if it's the refi cap or if you are just going to exit out of the deal, do you look at the reversion cap rate and is it 1% higher? Some, some of the syndicators I see do same as uh, the cap rate as now, some do 0.5 basis points, some even do you know, be conservative and look at a one point higher cap rate. So do you look at all of that? Or what kind of variables do you use uh, when you are performing this exit test? Yeah, so this the exit test is focused on a refi. So then we're looking at the cap rate that the refi would be valued at, which is very similar to, like you said, a terminal cap rate, which is the value that you're, the, the cap rate that you're using to value your potential sale. And so we both, so what we do, as I mentioned, we stress uh, revenue on our exit test. So we say, well, what if we thought rents were going to be a thousand, but instead we missed and they're only going to be 950, right? Which is a big difference. Uh, so you can, you can do a, a test like that. Uh, another one would be, as you mentioned, the cap rate. So if you think, you know, you might have increased value through your business plan, right? You may have bought the property with seven, $700 rents and you might be increasing them to $800 and you're creating real value. But what if cap rates expand, meaning that you know, lenders and buyers are valuing that income that you created at a lower multiple, essentially. And you need to, you need to account for that. So we might stress the cap rate that, you know, on our base case, we think the cap rate is a six. Well, what if it's a six and a quarter? What if it's a six and a half, right? That's a big move in value and and could potentially put you in trouble. Um, And also the interest rate. And so the way that the interest rate works in terms of uh, stress testing the exit is if you have a higher interest rate, as you mentioned earlier, lenders are going to limit you to a minimum DSCR. And if you have the higher your interest rate is, the greater your debt service. And that means the greater your debt service is, the greater your income needs to be to pass that 1.25 minimum debt service. And so what could actually happen is you might, instead of being LTV constrained, right? Like like a 75% LTV or an 80% LTV, you might actually be what is called debt service constrained where they can only, you know, the lender can only lend, you know, 70% LTV because your DSCR isn't passing. So they need to lower the loan amount until the DSCR works. So looking at all those factors, you can kind of see different scenarios and, and hopefully, you know, your, your, your stress test can pass through those scenarios and you have a good enough deal to support that. Um, and if not, you may want to consider uh, lower leverage going in because lower leverage can solve a lot of those problems, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's true. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that, you, you know, even though I brought up uh, terminal cap rate and you are able to expand upon that. So do you uh, assume the terminal cap rate uh, by market to market, deal by deal, or do you always want to be conservative and put, you know, 0.5 or one point higher uh, cap rate, uh, terminal cap rate? Right. What we're typically looking for is we want to understand what the market cap rate is for the area. So, and to explain this better, 
if you were to, so a lot of people, like you said, just simply will look at what cap rate they're buying for, and then they'll add an additional half a percent or percent to that cap rate for the sale. But this in reality doesn't make any sense. And this is because to use an extreme example, let's say I'm buying a property that is half occupied, right? It's as 50% is vacant, right? I might be buying a 2% cap rate for that property. And just because I'm paying a 2% cap rate for a half vacant property doesn't then mean I should be able to sell it for a two and a half percent cap or 3% cap rate, right? Uh, that's just not how it works. So what you right. need to do is actually assess what stabilized cap rates are in the market and then apply some sort of increase to that if that's what you're looking to do. So that's, that's what we do. We look at, okay, we think today for a stabilized product post renovation, this deal will, would sell for today at a five and a half cap. We'll say, okay, let's add an additional 50 basis points to that and project to sell it at a six cap regardless of what we're buying it for. Because, you know, if we're buying a value add deal, we're buying likely at a compressed cap rate, you know, somewhere around five or even four and a half. Got it. Okay. No, that, that, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> so let's talk about, cause this were all underwriting criteria when you and I'll take a look at as a, active investors, right? How can passive in, investors underwrite a syndication deal, right? A multifamily syndication deal using your book or, some kind of model. Uh, of course, they don't want to get into the weeds of you know uh, how the deal would be um, or the project plan would be executed. But how can they see if this uh, deal is sound uh, and and safe to invest in? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question, and it really depends on how, as you said involved and into the weeds a passive investor wants to get right because theoretically they could spend their time fully underwriting the deal looking at the comps and and, and doing all that which would be fantastic but a lot of uh past investors do not have the time or they're just not interested in in doing that and so you know if a past investor is at the, at a minimum interested in being educated on the subject and willing to put in a little effort i think as you mentioned the best way to go would be to uh you know, read through my book and take that time to understand all the inputs that go into producing the output results of a model, which are the projected returns. And then, you know, I recommend at a minimum, you could take 15 minutes and you can just take all the numbers that the sponsor is assuming and plug them into any model that you prefer to use, uh, whether it be mine or otherwise, and then see what the output is and you know just kind of double checking their work essentially and um you know then you can maybe tweak with some of the assumptions because maybe you disagree with the sponsor's rent growth or maybe you disagree with the sponsor's exit cap rate and you could just quickly change those numbers in the model and then see the different result and say okay well can i live with that if i think i'm if i think you know things are going to end up a little differently and so having the the you know, the confidence and the ability to just simply input those numbers and make those few tweaks is going to put you in a great position to understand the deals you're looking at much better. Okay, no, that, that's interesting. Uh, so let's talk about some of the deals you have done. Uh, did you uh, close on any deal uh, this year? Yeah, we, we closed on a deal actually back in January oh, okay. uh, where we acquired a 228 unit property in Lubbock, Texas. 
Awesome. So you haven't done anything after COVID. Um, well, it's, uh, are you waiting for the market or are you waiting to see what happens with the election? <laughs> you know, we're definitely not waiting by any means because we're remaining very active in the market. We're looking at tons of deals. We're, we're staying in contact with, um, you know, brokers, sellers, buyers. Um, so it's not really a function of waiting for anything necessarily. We're just staying disciplined to our underwriting metrics and you know we've maybe gotten a little more conservative with the way that we're seeing the world given the uncertainties associated with covid um but with that we also have to acknowledge the fact that interest rates particularly oh, yes. for fannie and freddie uh debt that you've mentioned have come down significantly which also buoys values so there's been yes. forces at play that have both reduced value and increased value so we're taking them all into account in our underwriting um, but so far it's been hard to find, find value, but, but we're, we'll be patient and disciplined as always. Got it. What, what has been your best deal so far? I would say the best deal that we've had so far was a 160 unit project in Houston that we acquired a little over a year ago. And during our first year of ownership, we were able to take the occupancy from the low 80s up to 100%. Oh, wow. While raising, yeah, while raising rents. And so that has resulted in a quick increase in value. Um, and, and also, we didn't take a ton of risk. You know, we didn't have to renovate a ton of units and spend a lot of money and do a ton of work. It was more of a management play where we had to come in and improve uh, improve management and, and marketing and things like that to attract tenants at, at a higher rent as well. Um, and so, so that deal over that year, we were able to prove out our business plan, get the, get the increase in value through, through higher occupancy. And then we were able to refinance out of our bridge loan into a permanent Freddie Mac loan at a much lower interest rate and a higher loan balance, which is able to then return capital back to the investment partnership. Oh, wow. So uh, were you able to refinance out of it? Yes. Oh, okay. And uh, what kind of capital were you able to return? Uh, we are returning around 25% of oh, the okay. initial capital. That's great in a year. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure if you have had a bad deal or uh, is that a worse deal so far? <laughs> <laughs> No, we, I mean, we've been very fortunate. We've definitely had difficult situations where we've had to, you know, spring to action and, and deal with things uh, in terms of, you know, as an example that actually my business partner just reminded me of today, we had a, a situation where we brought in tenants that were sponsored by a nonprofit that were subsidizing their rents. And what ended up happening is this nonprofit ran out of funding. And so oh. we had moved in all these new residents that we're all excited about this nonprofit and then all that source of funding disappeared. And it was a very difficult time because we had all of a sudden, uh, you know, had all these people that who could no longer pay. And then we had to deal with, you know, uh, a drop in occupancy and then having to march that occupancy back forward. And so that was, um, you know, a, a difficult time where all of a sudden you have to have to deal with something like that. So I think we, we definitely learned our lesson and our new policy is to only accept uh, you know, subsidize renters uh, if they're being subsidized by, you know, 
certain um, you know, groups Section like eight, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a government funded pretty much. So no, that's an interesting point because one of my friend also uh, who owns a hotel and you know, hotels started struggling. So they also started accepting people through uh, some nonprofit, right? Long-term tenants and all. Yeah. And so far he's doing good. But my next question to you is that how uh, were you able to evict them? How did the eviction moratorium uh, deter you or, or did it deter you from evicting any one of those people, tenants? Well, well, this event actually happened over a year ago, so it oh, wasn't okay. during COVID. So, yeah, but we, we have been, you know, working through the eviction moratorium depending on where our properties are. And, um, you know, we've been pleasantly surprised with how our residents have been cooperative in terms of, uh, you know, promise to pays and, and payment plans and things like that. So, you know, for the most part, residents are working with us and doing the best they can, which is obviously all we can ask. Um, so we aren't seeing, at least in our markets that we own in primarily in Texas, we aren't seeing, you know, rent strikes and um, things like that, that would definitely cause a landlord to lose sleep. Got it. So which markets in Texas uh, do you have, um... You know, properties in right now. Say that one more time. Uh, which markets in Texas, right? Uh, you own properties. Yeah, so we own properties in Houston, Lubbock, and Texarkana. Okay, okay. So Texarkana, if I remember correctly, was uh, or is dependent a lot more on oil. Have you seen any uh, drop in occupancy or anything because uh, you know when the oil dropped? No, Texarkana actually isn't uh, an oil oil market. Texarkana is um, education, medical, and military. Oh, okay. So Texarkana is a pretty stable market actually, and has actually seen some positive rent growth during the last uh, you know six to twelve months. So it's been it's been good to see that. We don't have any markets that are uh, that have heavy exposure to oil, but um, but yeah, it would be interesting. You know, we are thinking about. Uh, how that's going to affect those properties and, and see if there's an opportunity to maybe purchase those properties right. at a discount yes. when that materializes. No, that's a great point. And uh, what kind of markets are, are you currently focused on? Is it only Texas or are you looking at some other markets and why? We are primarily focused on, on Texas and specifically Houston. We, we like Houston a lot. We have experience there, so we're comfortable there. Uh, and we'd like to continue to grow our portfolio there. Um, you know, we do selectively look at some Southeast markets. Obviously there's a lot of growth in the yes. South, whether you're looking at Atlanta or you're looking at markets in Florida. So, you know, we, like I said, we selectively look at, at deals there, but it's hard to, it's hard to be everywhere nope. and it's hard to be an expert everywhere. Right. So in my opinion, rather than trying to chase every deal that maybe looks interesting, you know, in many markets, I recommend becoming an expert in one or two markets. That way you're going to be sure of, you know, uncovering those unique opportunities when they come up and that they don't, you don't miss out on them. Because even though you might want to look at all these great markets and, you know, these markets across the country that have fantastic rent growth, you know, the big names being Phoenix, Denver, Dallas, um, and, and, you know, big growth markets like that. At the end of the day, 
the growth there, everybody knows about it. And so the prices are very high. Oh, yes. And so it's hard for someone to just, to just show up to those markets and, and win a deal and for have it to, to really make sense. Because in my opinion, you know, markets often overpay for growth. And so unless you really know what you're doing, it, it would be easy to, you know, to make that mistake. That's great. Thank you so much, Rob. Let's take a quick break. And after the break, I'll ask you my usual questions, which I ask every guest. You're listening to the Wealth Matters Podcast. The Wealth Matters Podcast. For more info about what we do, check us out at wealthmatters.com. It's wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, matters, M-A-T-R-S, dot com. Welcome back to Wealth Matters Podcast. I am talking underwriting multifamily acquisitions with Rob Briersley. And uh, Rob, are you ready for fire round? I'm ready. Okay, let's go. Would you be changing any business or investment strategy after coronavirus? Yeah, so we actually have started a new strategy called our preferred equity platform. Uh, not directly due to COVID, but there have been certain changes in the markets that have compelled us to really want to focus on this strategy of where we're actually, um, in effect, lending preferred equity to other sponsors who are acquiring and recapitalizing assets. And, you know, given the risks of the market, we're seeing it as an opportunity to play in a more defensive strategy, take less risk and still participate in transactions in the market, right. Rather than just sitting out completely. So we've been making preferred equity investments uh, during this time, which has been positive. And we plan to continue to grow this strategy, you know, well beyond this COVID period. Got it. Okay. No, that makes sense. Favorite real estate or finance or any other related book other than your book. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I love reading in general. And so it's, it's hard to pick my favorite book, but what I'm currently reading is high output management by Andy Grove. And, uh, you know, so far it's been a very actionable book for anyone who's looking to, run a business and manage people within the business. Um, and so I, I find the book very refreshing and there's tons of takeaways. That's uh, great. Thank you for sharing. Any tool or website you recommend or you can't live without? So a simple tool that is uh, free, anybody can use is justicemap.org. And all you, what I, what we use it for is we plug in a property's uh, address and then it, we can see the income for that area and we can get granular um, from the census tract data down to block by block approximations. So we, we use that in addition to obviously CoStar, which is a paid yes. service that provides a ton of data. But the justice map is a nice quick way just to get a sense of the neighborhood. Okay, that's great. I did not know about it. Any advice for beginner investors? Uh, you know, pick a market, find where you fit in because you can't do everything and, you know, work with mentors. That's great. How do you give back? So I, uh, I love to teach. I've always been a teacher, you know, whether growing up, I taught piano, I tutored math. So I've always been a teacher. I love to give back that way. Um, it's always exciting to see somebody, you know, uh, grow, you know, from your, from your teaching and, and, you know, 
appreciate what you're what you're giving them and then really put in the energy and effort into into that uh so i do you know i'm happy to speak with people and just give them my advice and, and share my time with them and i also do formal uh mentorship for multifamily investing companies that's awesome how can my listeners reach out to you so the best way to learn more about me and get a hold of me is by going to robbeardsley.me. And on that website, you can learn more about the book that we discussed today, The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. You can also sign up for our newsletter uh, and get the underwriting model that we talked about for free and, uh, and much more. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed, you know, I learned something new as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing.